0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm fine, thank
1: you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year <laughs> to you, too. And who do we have on the 3D pod today?
0: Uh, well, today we've got Lars Brubaker. And Lars, actually, well, uh, his his background is unlike uh, anyone else we've ever had because he got started in computer games. And he started working for a company called Interplay, which at one point made Fallout and lots of other really cool games. Then he started a business, which he uh, was a CEO of, founder of, uh, called Reflexive Entertainment, which I worked for for 11 years, and that was later sold to Amazon. Uh, And then I worked at Amazon for a while. And then in 2011, he started MatterHackers. And uh, MatterHackers uh, for the 3D printing revolution, let's say, MatterHackers was there from the very beginning, kind of the kit type of development up until we saw like the pre-assembled kits, then the the, the first uh, kind of semi, uh, you know, Ultimaker 2 and these kind of models coming out. And then right now, MatterHackers is kind of more graduated towards more of the industrial slash government type solutions company. So it's... A, so you know only in the matter hackers portion have seen the whole thing through from like kind of the desktop 3D printing revolution uh to now the kind of more uh mature kind of business revolution so that that story is really interesting and i think you know given the, ba- the the pioneering game work he's done it's 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 also going to add a little, little bit extra different viewpoint as well uh so yeah welcome to the show Lars well thank you so much it's great to be here so you were okay you were working in, well, first you had a gaming career for like a really long time. I did, and, for like 20 years. Yeah, so 20, 20 years, years of computer software. games. <laughs> and then yeah, like, 20, oh, 20 years of you know, computer hardware? games, software, right? <laughs> yeah. And what made you say, oh, you know what? I need to go do hardware, this making DIY movement. That's the next thing for me. So um,
2: when we were in gaming, uh, I was very excited about gaming. It's what I started to learn how to do in high school. I wanted to be a programmer. Uh, you know, I read the Iron Man comic books before they were in fad. And so being an inventor and growing up to do that was my life's ambition. And when, and I had thought that maybe that's electrical engineering, maybe that's mechanical engineering, but when I finally touched a computer and realized that you could uncompromisingly build the things that you think of, like in engineering, if you build something by the time it's, it, by the time it works, it's not what you imagined. Uh, whereas in software, by the time you build something, it could be exactly what you imagined. And so, I was hooked immediately uh, and wanted to make games. You know, I went to the arcade as a little kid all the time. And so gaming was just this incredible adventure for me. But as I did that for years and years, I kept getting back to that idea, that Iron Man idea, Tony Stark, that I wanted to be an inventor. I wanted to be making things, even though you you can't realize that vision in the same way. And when MakerBot came out, I followed the early rep movement, that original open source uh, version as the 3D printing was coming out of patents. And, uh, I told my wife at the time I was working for Amazon. I had a three year contract after selling the company to work for them. And I said, I think this is it. I think this is what I want to do next. And so she bought me the first MakerBot cupcake. Uh, for Christmas. And I put that together. And as soon as it started printing, I was like, oh my God, this is this is definitely what I need to do. Put that
1: together. That was like, things. yeah, put it together successfully. That was really it simple, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. It was a piece of
0: cake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right there. I had one of those. <laughs> and, and then I, got I don't agree.
2: Out, and I put that together. But when I saw it and I was looking at the software and the stack, I thought I could do something here. This is This right. is compelling. Right. Yeah. Like there's an opportunity. And so Uh, when my contract with Amazon, uh, finished up, I got together with Kevin Pope, who's our COO. He had started a software company, um, a year before I left. And, uh, I convinced him that we should do 3d printing and we, you know, jumped on this train and started this adventure. And, and in the early days we were printing parts for people. Uh, we were starting to write software, but that was still like a year away from its initial release. And, um, then we started selling filaments and we are just doing anything, any scrappy thing that we could
1: to be in the market, to be, you know, trying to pay some bills. How did you find that transition from going from a, a software kind of based company to a hardware style company in the, in the sense that you now had to deal with very different things. You can't push an update. Once a product is left, it's left. A warehouse is now required, all that kind of stuff.
2: Was it- uh, so, I mean, that's a fantastic question because, when we started, one of the things I knew was that eventually, uh, Matter Hackers, my knowledge base, my network, uh, and our experience would be in this hardware business. And at the time, I thought compared to what I knew at Reflexive, where I knew the industry players, I knew the other CEOs, I knew how to sell product, I knew what our revenue stream would look like, I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know. Uh, what How it is that you warehouse inventory, what you have to track? Right. I didn't know anything about <laughs> like the what we'd have to deal with in returns, what we'd have to deal with with failures. Uh, and i and I didn't know any people, right? And we didn't have any employees either, so I didn't even have like the team right. at our company where I could say, these are the trusted people that you can go to because they know how to execute. Um, but I did know that I would eventually have all of that, that eventually, three years, five years down the road, I wouldn't see it that way. I would see it in this new way that I had never experienced. And so that was incredibly exciting and intimidating and occurred, right? So now, yeah, I know
0: uh, Supply the chain impossible the complexity
2: of trying to <laughs> yeah, inventory things right. and trying to sell small things and trying to you know, have shipping optimizations and having to deal with Missing BOLs, bill of ladings have, yeah, have yeah. coming and, in. And, and the
1: nuisance of customers expecting free shipping because somebody else out in the world provides oh, free yeah. shipping. And the <laughs> nuisance
2: of customers thinking that we should pay them for their time that they've, that yeah. they've lost. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I totally am sympathetic to it as a, as a person who gets paid, but to assume that Amazon will pay you because your TV didn't plug in quickly. Right. That's uh, <laughs> wishful thinking, which I totally respect, but also it can't happen. <laughs> but they were all new they were all new stories. I had no concept that this is what we were going to learn. You can't know what you're going to know
1: before you before you get there. I'm curious was there one particular thing that you were the most surprised by or the most challenged by?
2: Boy, that is also a great question. I think I think the most overwhelming thing that we had no concept of was really what carrying inventory means um when you're doing software for a really long time and we had a a game distribution network so we sold hundreds and hundreds of developers games as well as our own games and so we had a lot of idea about this kind of recurring revenue model and the life cycle of products as they ship and sort of the diminishing uh, sales that you're going to see and all of that remained consistent in hardware but the thing i had never done was deal with uh inbound inventory delays warehousing inventory, shipping inventory, broken things as they go in and out, returns, restocking, repairs, refurbishment. I mean, that actually is the life and death of any business in hardware, period. You know, Walmart, Amazon, us, Home Depot, you know, Barnes and Noble. There is only one thing that matters, and it's making sure that that inventory flow is working, that you have product to sell. I mean, when you're selling digital product, you always have product to sell.
0: If we don't have the things that people want to buy, then we make no money that day. Well, what was like making money for you in these initial days? Was it filament or what was that kind of working?
2: So the the very first thing, um, so we had a partner who had done a Kickstarter. So they made a thing called Zen Table. Uh, It's a little art drawing table. It would draw things in sand with a ball connected to a magnet. Um, And that Kickstarter had succeeded. And so we decided that we would try to fulfill that first. Uh, So that partner ultimately left the company And um, then we had to figure out what are we going to do? And so we were just looking around for any opportunity. And at the time, the two opportunities that existed were uh, Rostock kits. So the open source version of a Delta printer, Mm -hmm. uh, people needed those parts to be printed. And we had two printers. So our two, three (laughs) printers, we started printing uh, Rostock kit parts and selling them on any forum or Reddit or any place that we could find where people were trying to buy parts. And then second thing that we did was um, MakerBot at the time was selling filament, but it had about a three month lead time. And three month lead time means market opportunity. And so we were trying to source and sell filament. Uh, And at our current scope, it just seems insanely impossible, but we had, you know, two racks from Home Depot that were full of filament. And that was our entire inventory. You know, we're buying, what is that 60 to 100 spools at a time and just selling them? And from those humble beginnings, you know, is our
0: entire business. Yeah. It's actually kind of interesting at the beginning. I think there was a guy in New Zealand who was selling filament. Uh huh. Something like the Diamond Age or something. Yep. Yep. I, he sold diamond filament and it was pretty good. Yeah, it was really good, but it was like in New Zealand. So I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was, know. Really <laughs> <but> it was <laughs> the then, best PLA I had seen, actually. Yeah, it was. It was he it was, was the first to do PLA. I was the first, it first didn't I could crack
2: find. And it didn't break. It was uh, really yeah.
0: very compelling.
1: Was he, he was manufacturing that. it in New Zealand?
0: I think so. I think he had a line and everything. Yeah, I really? have no idea. He disappeared at one point. I have no idea what happened to that. He just evaporated. I never, I never knew what happened either. Yeah, I mean, they just disappeared. And, and a lot of the guys in the early days disappeared, right? Uh, a lot of the guys that were like really early, in the beginning of the filament business, it was just, uh, the reason why our filament is so expensive is because people were getting it off of Alibaba, it was welding rods, and they were buying it, and they were getting the sample price, plus then the uh, DHL or, or UPS cost from China. And that came out to be about 50 bucks or something for one spool. Yep. <laughs> so that ended up being the price of filament for a long time. <laughs> Yeah. Which didn't didn't really make sense, and then uh, and then all these other guys got into it, of course, because they were like, "Wait, you're paying fifty bucks for, a, you know, a, a, a kilo of ABS? What? What Are you people crazy?" And then it got much bigger. But in the beginning, there was like very little filament available. and the only good stuff was this dude in Australia, yeah, or New Zealand. Sorry, and it was really bad. That's actually
2: really accurate. <laughs> we had a very difficult time finding PLA that was worth selling. Yeah, um, and even then, we had a lot of customers who had issues with it. Uh, so we were always trying to figure out how it is that we could get any spooled filament that didn't unwind immediately when you opened up the packaging. Yeah, and right. that didn't just crack itself to pieces. Yeah. It took us probably six or nine months before we could find an ABS supplier that sold ABS that you could consistently print.
0: Yeah, because it, it was all this welding rod stuff, right? So it was like this low, 20,
1: yeah. 2012, 2013? When, yeah, 12, 13 or something like that. 12 or 13? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So So I I went to a welding welding rod company in order to get my first round of of material of ABS and PLA. And it was very funny because they also were like, oh, you're another Kickstarter and you want it like next week. I was like, no, I want it in six months. They're like, oh, someone we can work with. (laughs) Um, So it was clearly also a lot of people that were wanting instant like filament and weren't willing to wait uh, from a supply chain
0: perspective, which I find interesting. Uh, there was a lot of bubbling. There were a lot of problems with dimensional yeah, accuracy a lot and of stuff. <laughs> yeah, we had a lot of in it. Uh, roundness? Oh my god, it was horrible. Uh, so, how did you guys find a good filament supplier? Because that must have been fun as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um,
2: so we would get filament samples just all the time. We still do get filament samples, although we have a lot of good suppliers now, so it's not the same kind of you know crapshoot, just taking random shots. But we would just ask anybody who could make filament if we could get a spool. Uh, to see if it was going to be high quality. And we would tell them, you know, that we're interested in buying X number of kilograms a month. Uh, and that got them excited at the time because it seemed like a significant quantity compared to what was happening. But um, we would just get bad filament, um, U.S. suppliers, uh, Chinese suppliers. Uh, we got filament from Italy and Germany and the UK and all over the place. And um, we had a hard time finding good, good materials
1: but thankfully not as much a problem anymore.
2: (laughs) Yeah, When did it start changing? I would say that when we found that ABS filament, um, that was a US supplier, that that was the first time that we were trying to expand. But you also have to realize like nobody was making filament. You could get PLA and you could get ABS and you didn't know what was in them or what they were made of. And that was it. Right. There were no nylons at all until Tallman came out. There were no PETGs. There was no TPU. There was nothing.
0: And I think also, there was just like we didn't know what the, the quality standards were. Like my, my favorite one is that like the, the, a lot of Chinese suppliers under-dimension their filament, right? Because they don't yeah. want to clog the nozzle. And a lot of people don't even know that, right? And then also <laughs> another problem with the filament a lot of times is that the, the validity is wrong. And yeah. a lot of people don't even realize that as well. And they then like they, they fiddle with their extruder and they raise the temperature and all this. And they don't realize that it's actually that the stuff is, is not as round as it should be. So it's giving all these problems uh, where it shouldn't like. So it was, it, was, it was not even that we didn't have a good supplier, but no one knew what the criteria were even to be a good supplier, you know?
2: Absolutely. And also, you know, for PLA in particular, you can have uh, a low molecular weight, which means that the carbon molecule, that chain isn't long enough. And so that makes the filament very brittle and weak. And uh, and that's hard to assess. I mean, you get this material and it just looks like PLA, but then as you're printing it, it all your parts can just crack apart very trivially.
1: Well, definitely everyone used to initially think that, you know, oh, plastic's plastic. And yep. I used to think that too. And then I'd buy one spool from one company and another spool from another company. Like, oh my God, my printer works with this spool and it doesn't work with the other one. Yeah. So. And then you run into okay.
2: the other phenomenon, which is the art of 3D printing is so bizarre. Uh, it's not <laughs> clear at first that there is any, but then you learn how to print a particular brand of filament and you get good at it. And when you go to another spool of filament, another brand that other people like a lot, it just doesn't work right, and it doesn't work right because you don't have the right speeds, or you don't have the right temperatures, or you don't have the right adhesion. And you know, and, and sometimes that's not the material, and sometimes it's just the user is so used to
0: the way that they're doing things um, that that's the barrier. And and then of course, okay, we're talking about filament. I think that was really difficult, but at the same time, well, uh, the printers weren't great either. We had printers were perfect.
1: They've always been perfect. I mean, no, the understanding
2: time, of what was what was correct also was just. Like people didn't know. Yeah. Like the simplest question, the most common question that we would get when we would go to a conference is where is zero? So mm-hmm. now printers have auto leveling and they have a lot of instructions and they have, you know, various calibration methodologies. But back then someone has to lower the head to the bed and they're like, what means that it's touching the bed? Does touching the bed mean it's pressed in? Is it above it? Is it extruding filament? What, you know. Like a business card. Paper.
1: A piece of paper. Yeah, a business <laughs> a card. Business card. A piece card. of paper folded <laughs> over. <it>. Yeah. <laughs> You can move it.
2: <laughs> when my slicing engine thinks it's at zero, where is it at? And yeah. these were really complex things in the beginning that we don't deal with anymore.
1: No, but they were very frustrating in the beginning. I absolutely agree. Oh, God, agree. it was horrible.
2: <laughs> but you were still able to make things that you just couldn't Right, make.
1: but it was just such a pain. You're it right. It still magic. The, you'd, yeah, you do your little dance around the machine and then pray to the gods. That it uh, do, I just loved do that do
2: the, the old things. cupcake and the thing made so much noise because they didn't have... Uh, uh, partially stepped stepper motors, So they would bang between each step and it right. would just sound like a musical instrument, a loud one.
0: And what was like, when did you guys become successful? Because like at one point, there were a lot, of, like first you were like, yeah, there was pioneering, nobody was doing it. And then all of a sudden, everyone was doing it, right? Uh-huh. Everyone was selling stuff everywhere. And there's all these people like doing it. And how did you kind of manage to lift yourself out of that morass out of like hundreds of companies that were selling stuff? Uh,
2: I think that the interesting thing is that Kevin and I in particular are really data oriented guys. Uh, we're both software developers. And so building a company that can be profitable means that you can live through the hard times. And so trying to optimize how we're shipping, trying to optimize how we're inbounding, trying to you know, make sure that we have good products and that we're keeping track of what's being returned and what's selling well and what people like. I, I actually think that those fundamentals were the reason that we survived. And then, of course, just the luck. So falling into this opportunity that MakerBot had with um, having that long lead time meant that we could get enough traction and filament that we started buying at a level that meant we had an economic advantage to buying. And once we had enough buying power that we could actually get our inbound price to be a little cheaper, it, it just meant we're not gonna go out of business the moment that pricing changes or that uh, you know, we get some more competitors.
1: We, did you, how long did it take you guys to achieve profitability? Was it a year um, or two years or could you, if you don't want to disclose that, I understand. It's a, no,
2: I'm, I'm, it's the good thing about it is it's a very complex question and it's very complex because any startup company, you've got the founders essentially working for free initially. Yeah. And then even after that, like radically reduced compensation. So, uh, our CFO had done, you know, financial auditing and worked at one of the, the big five. And so, he's incredibly experienced and he was getting paid a lot of money. And then he came to work here essentially for free. Uh, Kevin, our COO was a controller at my previous company. And then at Amazon, he was like, you know, a finance guy and a project lead. And so he was getting paid a lot of money. And then I was like, uh, a lead, like I ran the the studio where we were. And so for all of us to take frankly, massive pay cuts to run this company, um, how do you say when were you profitable? You know, because we certainly weren't paying ourselves in any compelling way. And so I would say that the company uh, had cash flow positive income probably after about three years, as long as you didn't account for the fact that we were paying a lot of people in stock and we were paying, we were asking a lot of people to work on hopes and promises.
0: Yeah, well, I think. I remember, there I was at a startup at one point, and we like, it was like a major milestone. Everybody was really happy, and then I'm like. Oh, wow! That actually means that they could pay me <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I'm looking at the whole room and all these other people like they can't pay any of these other people <laughs> yeah, uh, but they could pay me, <laughs> yep,
2: and that's how it was for a long time. I mean that even now, I mean we're still we're still a startup company, we're still a small business, and um me and Kevin and Mike, and some of the other uh pretty significant shareholders are. Really working for that long-term benefit, that long-term outcome of the business, um, and we probably have to not double, but somewhere in that neighborhood to get to the level that we want to be at.
0: One one thing that's interesting throughout this whole period, you didn't really take on investor cash, right? You didn't say we're going to forty x this thing or something. Is that because investors were not that interested in retail, or, or or was that a choice?
2: Probably a little bit of a combination. I mean, we are pretty selective about how we take on finding. Funding and money, uh, but we but we did look for it, and we did receive some. So um, Graham Software is an investor. Uh, we have a lot of uh, friends and family that have invested in the company, and we've taken on some pretty significant capital over time. And uh, and we're we're still open to capital. It just has to understand our business and be re- kind of aligned.
1: Which is harder than most people think, honestly, to find like these. Good it's very hard to find
2: America. capital. Yeah. yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the reason it's Perceived that it's not so hard is because we hear the stories of the people that did it, and typically those stories are of people that are like rocket ships, right? But right. it's hard to keep in perspective how anomalous they are. I mean, when you think about somebody like Desktop Metal or uh, Oculus or all of any company that we hold up as, oh my God, they raised a billion dollars, you know, they're like one in a million factually.
1: Right and you have to sa- you literally have to sacrifice like a million companies in order to oh, get yeah. to it. well you have to is a whole you have to thing.
2: promise that you'll pay back those investors at such a rate <laughs> yeah. that, that you don't have and any it, money. And and
1: and it is this a weird expectation that you know in order to make these unicorn companies you know you have to fuel this insane growth and throw in all this money and whatnot and then if if you wanted to build a company that just kind of grows and is profitable, but doesn't, you know, as you say, as in a rocket ship, yeah, I don't want to give you money. No, people so. don't want to invest in that. <laughs> yeah. I don't want stable, you know, income. I, I want a rocket ship. So Yeah. Yeah. I already had a job. Now I'm yeah, rich. I want to, like, <laughs> I want to invest in something that just makes me richer. Uh, and they tend to expect you to like go hire a hundred people um, in a year, which just dramatically changes and alters the feel of a company, obviously, and, and yeah. changes your focus. So it. It's a really double-edged sword to like take that much money. Um, the hardest part, and,
2: you know, I think Amazon actually, the reason they're successful is they had the discipline to get through that part. But the mm-hmm. hardest part is once you get that kind of money and you start hiring in that way and spending in that way, that that becomes the culture of the company is to, is to grow at the expense of profitability. And then when you decide you want to be profitable, no
0: one at the company
1: knows how to. Because you spend all your time growing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, say, and saying effort, it, the, the bottom line.
0: Yeah, and if we look at this this market, this is like this retail market, right? Well, I mean, I think we saw a couple of shakeout points. The first is like the part where uh, a lot of the guys that started in the kind of the, the rep-rap community sales thing, uh-huh. it was just a guy with an idea and a simple website, and they kind of tended to be out-professionalized, let's say, by the more retail-focused, uh, kind, of, kind of more professional, if you will, more well-capitalized companies, right? Mm-hmm. And then we saw another kind of, uh, thing where the rep rep guys who stuck it out kind of got pushed out by the more kit focused or ultimaker 2 kind of companies and then yet again we saw another wave of companies especially filament companies fail when there was a shift to more business users yep so to me the, the, there's like you know the the i don't know you can say this completely differently if you want if you, you define it differently but to me this every single time was a completely different business strategy that kind of made sense you know and how did you manage to adapt to each of these different marketing conditions, market conditions?
2: It, it is true that there were like big changes in sort of the customer expectation, particularly when you look at hardware. So, I mean, I'll, I'll describe it this way, which is I like to say that we're always operating at the edge of our competence. And I think that the industry itself, the desktop 3D printing industry is always operating at the edge of its competence. And it's hard to kind of understand and hold in your mind that it takes years and years for the technology and the infrastructure to evolve to the point, even if you're HP, you, you know, you can't get, you can't have nine men, nine women get pregnant in one month or give birth in one month. It, it still takes all of the time to go through the whole pregnancy. It still takes all of the time to develop the software, to develop the technology, to develop the consumer expectation and knowledge of being able to have 3d printers that function in the early days. You could sell printers to people who can build them and make them work even though they shouldn't work. And then you can sell printers to people that can build them and they kind of do work. And then you can sell printers to a school and the school can't build them, right? If you don't have a printer to give them that already works, they just can't buy it. And so I think it was about being cognizant and quick with the evolution of the customer expectation. And that customer expectation isn't changing in the same customers, it's changing as we get to new customers edge of our competence. The edge of our competence is the edge of our customer opportunity. And all the time, that new customer segment needs more and more quality, expertise, hand-holding, or out-of-the-box functionality. And, and But how do
0: you do that? Do you, like, because I always tell people, like, do customer service. Like, I'm, Yes, you're the manager, but do customer service. Talk to customers. Yep. Or other people do surveys. For example, they look at MPS and stuff like that. Um, how do you, like know what the new customers are what the new demands are how the market is changing how do you figure that out
2: i mean you 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 did say it and it's really the only way <laughs> to do it, which is be respecting your new customers because your new customers the newest customers are your opportunity because they're representing the tip of the spear they're representing the the new market segment that is becoming available so for instance uh when schools started buying 3d printers and libraries started buying 3D printers we made a really big internal push to make sure that we were participating in that because they represented a new segment. So like on your list of questions is like the military and the military is the same thing, which is when they start becoming interested in it, you have to say, well, why is it that they can become interested in this space? And it's from the Delta, it's from the new changes that have happened recently as opposed to they're finally ready to do something. Because ChatGPT is a perfect example. ChatGPT can get a million customers in one week or two weeks or whatever it is because it's at the level where that many people can adopt it. But then it will hit the ceiling of what it's capable of adopting because that's as useful as it is. And to get to another set of customers, it has to become more useful. Another way to imagine it is, how in the world can something like Twitter or Facebook have a thousand engineers, right? Anyone who's a software developer is like, me and three guys could write that. <laughs> right. and it's true that you could, yeah, but you can only write the version that nobody can use, right? Because it needs to have every edge polished for it to be a billion people that use it.
1: And it has to be maintained.
2: I don't know if that answers your yeah. question, but you know, oh, no, I, th- I think yeah, that's a good yeah, idea because yeah. a lot of people
0: don't. Uh, I think the respect I think is, is also really important. The, the real and and the adaptation because there's a temptation to to have the same tone and to have the same customer group and just feel really happy with. Uh, selling to schools and not realize that there's government users or not realize that there's a lot of businesses out there or not realize it's production, you
2: know? The Creality printers and those uh, low-budget machines, as they improve in capability, you have to be ready to move again. You have to be able to say, well, where's the value add that we can do? How is it that we can still have customers that need what we can deliver? Like, why are there customers? And if you're not ready to ask that question over and over, then you'll just stop existing. Like if you just think you can keep selling a Type A machine that costs $2,000, two thousand twenty five hundred dollars, you can't. Uh, there gets to be a new machine that's literally better than your machine that costs one thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, I think I think you did kind of refer to bamboo right now, right? Without referring to bamboo, right? <laughs> uh, yes, I mean
2: they're a they're an ex- I mean, but that's just an amazing machine, you know? Yeah, uh, I
0: love. Oh my god, yeah,
2: yeah. And you have to say, well, how can I participate in there other than I hope I can?
0: And that is amazing. I mean, you you mentioned like Creality, Anet. There used to be like, I would turn that thing off every time I would leave to even go to the, like the supermarket or something. I would like, oh, I don't know, I'm leaving the printer in the house. You know, <laughs> I mean, is that a good idea? And now, you know, the stuff has gotten radically better, right? So I, I do think that's a really important consideration. So what do you think the state, the current state of the market is? You see it as like a segmented market with these $300 systems, low cost ones. The, the $1,500 kind of clone uh, systems, uh, the Prusa kind of model, and then the $2,500 full-featured ones, $5,000 more industrial. Do you see it that segmented, or is it way too early to think of this sort of like that?
2: Um, I do think it's segmented, and I think it's segmented specifically uh, based on people's time um, and what they need. So if you're a college student or a high school student or you know just somebody who wants to do this as a weekend hobby, you can afford to spend time getting that machine working. And the thing about a Creality printer is they can print absolutely the same quality as any printer. But anyone who has had one knows that sometimes you're going to get filament jams. You're going to get, you know, bed leveling issues. You're going to have just the random little things or pieces of the printer that you want to upgrade. And some customers don't want to deal with that. Like if you're a military customer or a business customer, enterprise customer, like if you're a JPL or Tesla, you do not want your engineer spending his, $60 an hour repairing anything like you would much rather just put that in the mail, send it back to us, and we'll send you a new machine than have that guy wasting time trying to unclog a nozzle. And so from that perspective, they just want something that's going to work out of the box, be the most reliable possible and be easy to replace or return or repair and not by them. And I think it's all about that. It's all about your economic level. So, you know, if I'm just a professional software developer and you tell me I could buy a Creality or I could get like a, a, a Prusa or a Bamboo or, you know, like an Ultimaker S3, I'd be like, well, to me, $1,500 is no, it doesn't matter. Like if I'm at that economic level where this is my hobby and it's important to me, then that's not very much money. And if you're a profession, you know, if you're a professional and, or a business, $2,500 is nothing if it saves you money. And so, yeah, I do think it's very segmented and I think it'll stay that way. And I think it'll actually expand because the capabilities that you can get at $11,000 with like SLS or I think there'll be an emergence of SLA um, like jetting as those patents start to come out. They're incredible. Like that, the level that you can achieve there is another
0: order of magnitude from what we're doing now. Do you think, I think there's one interesting thing is that, you know, everybody was talking about the consumer three D printing revolution. I thought the problem was we didn't have the good authoring software, so why would consumers do this, you know? Or how could they make stuff? But now everybody kind of says the consumer thing is never happening. And when everybody says never, then that's when I start to get interested, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you think that, like, you know, if we do see, well, not an order of magnitude, but if we see these 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 three hundred dollars systems get even better, do you think we get we can get more consumers involved, and then even larger than like selling a million a year?
2: Well, I'll, I'll do it as a story, which is we used to go to Maker Faire and there was a section for 3D printing. And then, you know, if there were still Maker Faires, there might still be a section for 3D printing. But at the time, 3D printing was in a section and that's where you could find 3D printers. And over the years, you started to find 3D printers in every single section. And so to say that 3D printers isn't part of the consumer space is just ignoring the fact that 3D printers are part of every space. You know, that used to be a little bit of hyperbole. And I would argue that it's not at all. Like, I don't know any person that I've met in the last three years that hasn't seen a 3D printer. Most kids have them at school. Every single college that I just toured with my uh, 17-year-old showed us their 3D printing lab. I mean, it is ubiquitous and it's important and it's never going away. It's becoming part of literally every single engineering, every single artist, and every single educational experience to just expect that there can be a 3D printer,
1: that the capabilities of 3D printers are available. Not a great dream, but the dream that you'd have one in your home, so to speak, to like print your plates or forks or something like that. Do you think that's Yeah, they're not close to that capability. (laughs) I mean, you have to...
2: You have to have – like not every single person has a bandsaw in their house either or even a drill right. press or even a table saw.
1: Yeah, but lots of homes do have them.
2: Yeah. But you're right, not every home. But they the ones sell that are them. interested in them. <laughs> every single person who wants one can have one. And as soon as you think that you need to go
0: buy a drill, you just go get one at Home Depot.
2: But, you know, not everyone even has an, a cordless electric
0: drill. Uh, no, I think that's a good, a good analogy. And, and what do you see then – because one of the interesting things, I'll ask you because you have a software background, and I've always complained about this. I kind of mentioned it before. This whole thing, like the problem is authoring. There's only like 3 million people that can do CAD in the world. You have to do 2,000 hours to do CAD. Consumers are never going to do that. And you talked about it before. Like Twitter has to be amazingly complex in order to be the simple. You know, as a software person, do you think that someone could develop like CAD for everyone or like simple creation software? Because is, is that, that would make everything so much bigger and so much easier.
2: So yes, but also no. Um, <laughs> the reality the reality is, uh, like again, it's so easy to do as an analogy, which is I can make you a tool uh, that will tell you how many sales we had for this month. And everyone can run that tool and everyone's like, oh, I can see the number, right? Uh, and that's the lowest level. And that tool does one specific thing exactly and that's all it does. And then you have the next step up, which is I can let you download the data and you can pull it into Excel And you can do whatever you want with it. And then, and you're like, well, that's fantastic. I could do anything now. And of course we've 100 X to the complexity and then, but you can't do anything. And the next level is I could give you a programming language and you can learn to use it and you can do anything. Right. So, uh, with capability comes complexity. And if you want to lower the complexity, so we want to say anyone can make whatever they want. We have to lower the capability. And if we want to think about how it is that we can get around that it's, it's things like dolly, these new AI art tools. And so recently, uh, NVIDIA released an art tool that can make 3D point meshes. And these sorts of art tools where you can describe what you want and get a result will live in that same domain. They'll radically expand what you can get. So you can say, I want a chair. The chair should have, oh, it should have four legs instead of five. Oh, it should have a swivel. And these new AI tools in the next several years will be able to build that And they will still live in the same space where they don't let you do whatever you want, but they will expand the capability radically for what a regular person can do by simply describing what they want.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think the the idea path would be different. It would be like you would say, I want a Christmas ornament. And then you would say, I want more romantic Christmas ornament or something more gothic. And then eventually you'll have 20 of them. You'll be like, can you make it a little bit edgier? And then you've got something, you're like, "Ah, that's okay. Exactly. You know, that to me is a way that would let anyone make a lot of stuff. It's not ex- like, and like exactly what you said, it's not going to be exactly what you want, but it's going to be close enough for people to think I'll do this for four minutes and then figure out, uh, have a Christmas ornament that's printable. Right. Absolutely. And you know, for
2: I've done some art in my life, but I would not say that I'm an artist or a painter in any way. And so for me, what you can get out of something like stable diffusion or Dolly, these art generation tools is better than anything I will ever make. Right. And, and in that regard, Like when you're making that Christmas ornament and you say a little bit more gothic, a little bit more edgy, a little bit more romantic, you're going to get a result that's so much better than you ever thought you could achieve, that it will be equivalent to getting exactly
0: what you wanted. Yeah, I think the problem with people are seeing that right now with this kind of stuff is like, it's like, okay, is this the word processor or is it making my story up, you know? Is this just an automation of stuff that's going on, all as well, or is it going to take away the the, the whole idea of authorship? You know, and we always try to over dramatize like new technology, but I don't know about this. Yeah, the AI just seems like ever present in our minds now at this point, right?
1: Well, I mean, we've all seen that that story the where they hook the AI up to the printer, and, and it gives a point cloud and all that. Yep. So we're, we're almost there where you're doing exactly what you're describing. I'm saying, just give it to me.
2: <laughs> and they're amazing. And I, you know, I think Hank Green recently did a, a, a vlog about it, talking about how we'll see this polarization first, where some people are saying it's great and some people are saying it's evil because uh, we see that with every new introduction of a technology that's disruptive. Right. Uh, and ultimately we get to the point where people start to understand that it exists and how to make utility out of it because it does exist, and even if you think it's evil, it still already exists, and it's only getting better. Um, and it has tremendous opportunity to make things easier and better. I mean, that Christmas ornament example that you just gave—that would be wonderful. Like if I'm trying to make Christmas ornaments, and your and your wife says, "Well, what the, what can that 3D printer do?" And you're like, "Watch this! Right, make yeah. me a Christmas ornament," and one appears on the bed. That'd be amazing. Yeah.
0: I'm I'm I keep I keep one of the most worrying things about like my yeah I'm a 3D printing consultant. so It's even worse. Uh If you have like somebody like you know, my parents broke their vacuum cleaner the other day, and they look at you like expectantly, like exactly. yeah, this is when yours is going to come out and make a vacuum cleaner part, you know, in 50 hours of my time, right? Exactly. And meanwhile, I'm like, you know, I could do some consulting and I'll buy you a new vacuum cleaner because that's still faster. <laughs>
2: I will go to Target and get you a vacuum cleaner for much less money than me making this part repair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right.
1: and it's you like know, really we weird. force all the companies to put all of their part, 3D part files up online for free to download, right? Isn't that how we solve this problem? Um, Even then, I, honestly,
2: <laughs> the selection and the printing and the orientation and the support structures oh, yeah. and cleaning <laughs> it up, uh, they can be worth it. I'm positive that we all, if we have 3D printers, have many, many things in our house that are 3D printed repairs. Yeah. but. It's a fringy thing to have that time be worth it. I mean, I probably have fifty things in my house that are three D printed that I designed, and I love them, but they were pretty expensive if you think about them.
1: I, some, I have a similar. My wife looks at them and is like, "Mm hmm." <laughs> like, good for you. I've, gotten, <laughs> I've yes, a few lovely, where it's it was
2: lovely. actually good enough.
0: <laughs> Not too many, though, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, but and so this brings us to the remarkable thing that you're in this whole this consumer. To, industry revolution. And now all of a sudden we see matter hackers is working with NAVAIR and the Navy and the U S government and stuff. So tell me about that. I mean, is that another question you guys just listening to the customer and finding out what the government needs or how does that, how did that come about? It really
2: is. Um, I think there's a great story that kind of illuminates how that exists and what that opportunity is. So, uh, during the COVID 19 pandemic in the early times, uh, there was a lack of PPE, personal protective equipment, and people were trying to 3D print those face shields. So Matter hackers, like so many people, was like, how can we help? What can we do to improve this? What are we good at? Is the first thing that we asked. And what we're good at, and what we do for like Navair and the military and these other people is help them succeed, which is the most ridiculous thing. It kind of sounds like a dot-com sort of thing to say, you know, we're enabling people to uh, succeed. But that's but it is real, and it's real in this way, which is. People had 3D printers, and they wanted to print protect, personal protective equipment, but they didn't know what to do with it. What? So you print a face shield, what are you going to do? Hospitals and other kinds of institutions needed this equipment, and they didn't know who to ask to get it. So the opportunity was to coordinate that activity. So we worked with the NIH to get a design approved, because a hospital actually can't take a design that's not approved by the NIH. And that was a huge undertaking. Like No one was actually trying to make sure that a hospital can take the equipment and use it. So we got a design approved, the 3D Verk stand design, and some other designs eventually got approved as well. And then we sent emails out to all of our customers and said, if you can 3D print this design that's now been approved and send it to us, we can get it packaged and, and sent out to places that need it. So we could coordinate the actual logistics and the accomplishment of these tasks. That's what NAVAIR needed. Navair doesn't need to understand that they could buy a 3D printer. They can buy a 3D printer. What they needed was someone to say, this thing will be at the location that you want it with the right firmware on it and the right hardware on it and the right things disabled and the right filament and the right extra parts and we'll have spare parts and we will coordinate all of the logistics of making sure that you succeed. And for a, for a place you know, that's gonna spend millions or hundreds of millions of dollars on something, if someone can say, I raise my hand to make sure you succeed, they say, yes, please. Because the worst thing that can happen to them is they get a shitload of equipment piled up on some doorstep somewhere, and it just sits there. Right. Because they don't know how to unbox it, and if they did, they don't know it passes their security requirements. Uh,
0: and is that the future of your business, or do you see this as a continual evolution of this uh, this thing?
2: I think that we intend and there and is an opportunity to to cater to and provide to that entire spectrum of users. Uh, All the way from the consumer who's trying to buy a budget machine, help them understand how to use it, make sure that, you know, they can both find a machine that's not a lemon uh, and then have the technical support to be able to get it functioning. And there's that big opportunity for us, which is making sure that these industrial and military and other kinds of clients can succeed at something that they don't have the economic time to fail at.
0: Well, that sounds like a really uh, challenging, but uh, a fun path ahead. Lars, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Max.
1: You always, George. Thank you.
0: And thank you for listening. This is another episode of The 3D Pod, and have a great day. You've been listening to The 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.